the mothers in the room this morning will readily identify with the illustration that I'm about to use, especially mothers who have nursed their babies. When a newborn cries and doesn't have a dirty diaper, what do they want? They want food. They want, they want nourishment, right? And they are laser-focused. They are persistent. They are insistent. And they want nourishment. And they want it now. Well, sometimes the search for milk with a newborn appears violent, frenzied at times, until that baby latches onto the source. And then what happens? Calm ensues. Well, sometimes. Those of you that are moms, you're saying, no, you don't, you don't understand, Tim. You don't quite get that. So, sometimes that happens, hopefully more often than not. Well, that's the picture that the Apostle Peter is using today in the passage of Scripture that we're going to be looking at. If you have your Bible with you, I'd, I'd encourage you to open it to Peter's first letter, First Peter, and we'll be looking at chapter 2. If you don't have a Bible with you, then you can look at the talk sheet, which may have, you may have picked up on the way in. The, the three verses that we're going to focus on this morning are on that talk sheet. And then I'll also put the scripture up on the screen behind me here. And hopefully you can follow along in one of those or all of those venues simultaneously. Before we actually read the scripture passage again, I want to give you what I think is a primary idea out of these three verses. And it's very simply this, that we are to crave the gospel, much like an infant craves nourishment, craves milk. We are to crave the gospel because it provides the power to love and the power to grow. So read along with me. I'll read it out loud. You can simply follow the first three verses of 1 Peter chapter 2. So put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander. Like newborn infants long for the pure spiritual milk that by it you may grow up into salvation. If indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. One of my favorite words is unpack, and that's hopefully what we're going to do this morning with the help of the Holy Spirit, is to take a a bit of a deep dive into these three verses and see how this might relate to us uh, specifically today. Before we do that, though, I think it's always very important to set the context. Um, After 12 verses in chapter 1, where Peter is just going on and on and on, and he's exulting in what God has done for his people, for us, Peter then, beginning in verse 13, issues four specific imperatives, four specific commands. The first one is in verse 13. He says, and it's a command, set your hope Fully on grace. The second command that grows out of chapter 1 is in verse 15. Be holy in all your conduct. I want to just quickly define that term. That was would have been uh, preached on a couple of weeks ago. That term holy, oftentimes we were misled. We mislead ourselves. We don't fully grasp what that's about. To be holy. 
holy, according to Scripture, is to be set apart. Okay? It doesn't mean perfect. <laughs> it means to be set apart, to be consecrated, to be purified, Peter uses that terminology, but to be set apart for His purposes, God's purposes, for specific, unique, you could even say peculiar purposes. That's what holy means. I want to make sure we have that working definition, both in the Old Testament as well as in the New Testament. We use another term in the New Testament. The Apostle Paul likes to use the word sanctification. It means the same thing, to be set apart for specific purposes that God has for us. The third imperative in chapter 1 that grows out of set your hope and be holy The third paradigm is to love one another earnestly, and that's in verse 22. And I listened to uh, Rick's message from last week to make sure that I was going to be building on a really solid foundation, which I am. And uh, he went into great detail about that in last week's message. Well, Rick was here preaching that message. I happened to be in West Lynn. So to me, uh, today is really the sequel to last week. It's part two. Of this, And so my um, big idea last week in West Lynn, I don't have a, a, a slide for it, but let me just share it with you. My big idea for that command to love one another earnestly was this. Love each other more than you think possible. Because you have been born anew by the living, enduring gospel. Well, as a result of those three imperatives, there is a fourth imperative, and it's here today, and it's in verse 2. And that is to long for or to crave pure spiritual milk. Now, mind you, this is Peter, born Simon, nicknamed by Jesus. The word Peter translated into English means rock. This is Peter. Uh, he later denies even knowing Jesus. Still later, Peter is forgiven fully by Jesus. And it's interesting to me, by use of the question, Peter, do you love me? So it shouldn't surprise us that Peter uh, writes about having this kind of earnest love that Rick spoke about last week. The narrative of chapter 1 and leading into the narrative of chapter 2, it, it, it literally swirls with a myriad of thoughts. Peter is not the Apostle Paul. Peter is a former fisherman. He's a fisherman because he most likely washed out of rabbinical school as a, as a very young boy. He didn't have what, it, what was necessary. Unlike Paul, who did go through rabbinical school, rabbinical training, studied under the, one of the best rabbis of his day. But this is Peter. He doesn't write like Paul writes. He writes differently. Yet, as Rick pointed out last week in, in his, his message, chapter 1 is full of rich theological content. Where'd that come from? Well, the Holy Spirit. Pentecost, the Holy Spirit came. Peter's a changed man. And so Peter's able to write some amazing things. He may not write it in the nice, concise, outlined, bullet point form that the Apostle Paul does, but nevertheless it's there. Rick, I loved what you said last week. This rich theological content is in a linear sequence of key ideas. That, that's a great quote. I love that. There, there is a sense there. And I want to make sure that you can see this here. Um, that's why I'm leaving this on, on the screen for just a little bit, because there's a flow to this. Now, this is a letter. This is not a theological treatise. This is not a theological textbook. But it's a letter that Peter's writing to Exiles to Christians living in Asia Minor, present-day Turkey, and they're living in exile. 
and but yet they're living together. Do you see the progression? There appears to be a flow of progression in these commands. It starts with grace. As a result of God's grace, there's a call to holiness. As a result of that, grace and holiness were to love one another. And then furthermore, as a result of that, we have a craving for the gospel. So today, we're going to focus on that last imperative, the fourth one mentioned right there in chapter 2, craving the gospel. Now what Peter calls earnest or fervent love in chapter 1 within the Christian community, that actually had become the hallmark of conversion. Remember, Jesus himself said, the world's going to know that uh, you are truly my people if you do what? Yeah, if you have sound doctrine, well, that's good, important, but no, if you love one another, that's the hallmark of conversion. Our love relationship with God is not an individual matter, just me, myself, and Jesus. It's not that. And so it's interesting to me today, everything in today's text, in chapter 2, everything is presented in corporate terms. For those of you that are students of Greek grammar, it, everything's in a second person plural. Uh, using words you, but it's you plural, not you individual. Uh, Peter's writing to a group of people. So that challenges me. That challenges my vision of the Christian life. What's, what's your vision of the Christian life? Is it something that you can, you can live out kind of in isolation by yourself? The, the scriptures don't present that. Ever. The scriptures present the Christian life is lived out corporately. It, in fact, I would go so far as to say that the Christian life cannot be lived authentically in isolation. I'd go so far as to make that claim. And I think that's based on Scripture as well. A good friend of mine, former pastor of mine actually, Ken Baugh, <clears throat> um, coined this, this phrase, and I, I love to use it, Christ-like formation occurs best within the context of Christian community. You know, we have a, a value at New Life Church, um, a, a value that we live life together. And we have a little booklet. You may have seen it. There's some out, out in the foyer. If you've never picked up one, I encourage you to do that. And one of the values there is that we live life together. And one of the statements there is that we, we live life together in such a way that we occasionally annoy each other. <laughs> and those of you that are engaged in life groups, and by the way, if you're not, I'd encourage you to. Because you can't live out the Christian life in isolation, right? So you might as well join a life group. But those of you that are in life groups, you know exactly what I'm talking about, right? We, we eat together weekly. We share um, our thoughts and perceptions around the sermon, around God's Word that was just preached on together. We engage in mission together. We fellowship together. We pray together. And we, those are, those are our five values. And we annoy each other. We could add a sixth. We do. Why? Because you, because we're living life together, and so as a consequence of that, it's just normal and natural. And that's the way that God designed it. And it's clear from Scripture that that's the way that God designed it. So, once again, Peter, this, this broader context, Peter is writing this letter to people just like that. They've been sent off into exile, they're living in Asia Minor, former Jews become Christians, former Gentiles become Christians, but they're now living together. And they're living in exile. And so he's trying to encourage them. He's trying to challenge them. He's trying to urge them on. Well, the driving force in uh, today's passage, these first three verses of chapter 
2 is in the command in verse 2. So we're going to start in verse 2, and then we'll, we'll back up and look at verse 1, and then we'll conclude by looking at verse 3. But the command that's given in verse 2 is this, to long for the pure spiritual milk. Like newborn infants long for the pure spiritual milk, that by it you may grow up into salvation. This this term long for, or I've used already the word crave, it means to greatly desire. In fact, in some contexts, it means to lust. It, it's that strong. The word is is that strong. It's a it's used of an intense, ardent, and a recurring desire that uh, believers in the uh, believers in God in the Old Testament and the Psalms in particular that, that they would have for God. And it, it, it's something that is instinctive. It's in, we, we're eagerly participating in it, and we're incessant in that longing for. This metaphor that Peter uses where he references newborn if, infants, this, this is interesting because it actually connects back to verse 23 of the previous chapter, where Peter has said, since you have been born again. So he's, he's connecting to something he's already said. Just like newborn babies, you've been born again into a new reality, into new life. And so he's making a metaphor here that's going to connect to that. And in turn, this connects back to chapter 1 and verse 3. That would have been weeks ago uh, if you had been here to hear that. Let me just read that verse to you. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to His great mercy, He has caused us to what? To be born again. To a living hope. Do you see that? That's, that's where we get the name of our sermon series. A living hope. We're born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Well, what is this spiritual milk that's being referenced here um, in the metaphor? This milk that we are to crave. Peter uses a couple of adjectives here to make his point. The first one is the word pure. Literally means unadulterated, uh, uncontaminated. It's actually the opposite word of a vice that is listed in chapter 1, which we'll look at in just a few minutes. It means to be free from fraud or deceit, to be pure, to be free from that, to be free from the vice that Peter lists in the previous verse. Irenaeus, who was a, a Greek bishop living in the south of what we now call France in the back half of the second century, uh, he's famous for engaging heretics in his day and for bringing the truth to bear on them. Uh, I, I love this quote from him. He said, they, heretics, mix gypsum with the milk. <laughs> Trying to make it stretch. They mix gypsum with the milk. They taint the heavenly doctrine with the poison of their errors. Peter is calling for a craving of this, of pure, pure, unadulterated, uncontaminated, free from deceit milk. And he says, secondly, the second adjective he uses is, he uses the term spiritual. I don't like to throw out a lot of Greek terms. The New Testament was, was largely written in the trade language of the first century, common Greek. But I, I will use this one because it's going to make sense to you. It's the Greek word logikon. It's the word from which we get the word logical. It's used one other time in 
the New Testament, it's used by Paul in Romans chapter 12 and verse 1, where Paul says we're to present our bodies as a living sacrifice. It's, it's part of our logicon worship. It's part of our logical, reasonable uh, worship. So the term itself means rational, reasonable, genuine, logical, or true to the real nature of that person. That's what the term means, and that's how it's being used here in this metaphor that Peter is employing. Well, what about the milk? Now, we run the risk of trying to define every single term in a metaphor. We run the risk of going all over the place. But I, I think this is, uh, and this is one of those where we could get off the rails quickly, but I think it's worth at least talking about. This last Thursday, uh, Pastor Scott and Travis and myself met for a little more than an hour and we collaborated on this message and we had quite a spirited uh, uh, debate, a spirited discussion about this. And at the end of our time together, we agreed to agree on this point. If you have a King James this morning or if you have a uh, New American Standard and NASB this morning, just glance at that and you'll see that it mentions the word of God. Most modern interpreters of Scripture, almost unanimously, actually, apply this metaphor to the Word of God. And it's understandable because the Word of God has just been talked about in the previous several verses at the end of chapter 1. But going a little further back, let's go back to John Calvin. He once wrote that now that Peter has taught that the faithful are regenerated by the Word of God, he is now exhorting them to lead a, a life that's corresponding with that new birth that has occurred. Look also, just in the text itself, look at the very last phrase, the very last sentence in verse 25 of chapter 1. It says, this word is the what? The good news that was preached to you. Peter, I believe, is equating uh, this word that had been preached to this first century audience, he's, he's equating it to what we would today call the gospel. The good news about whom? About Jesus. About Jesus Christ. This milk that we are to uh, crave is in fact the gospel message. The good news that Jesus Christ came from heaven took on our, our, our human flesh, lived among us, lived just like us, yet without sin, and then He died for us. But then He was resurrected to new life. And He sits at the right hand of the throne of God today, interceding on our behalf. This is good news. This is actually, that's too mild. This is great news. This is mega news. Right? And that's what we call the gospel. And I believe that what Peter is saying here in the metaphor is that we're to crave that, the experience of that good news, the experience of the gospel. Why am I coming across, hopefully, so strong in that regard? Well, because of something Jesus says himself, and again, I, I did not prepare a slide for this, but you can jot this down and you can look at it later, but I want to read it to you now. Jesus, in the Gospel of John, chapter 5, is speaking to a group of religious leaders of his day, Pharisees, scribes, and whatnot. Listen to what he says to them. You search the Scriptures, 
because you think that in them you have eternal life. Well, that's exactly what the religious leaders were doing. In fact, they could uh, pretty much quote the Old Testament, which is their scripture, their Bible. It's called the Tanakh. They could pretty much quote that backwards and forwards. They had such a grasp of that. Jesus says, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. And it is they that bear witness of me. Yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. Do you see the, the, they're missing something. They were students of God's word, in their case, the Old Testament. And they did, in fact, worship God's word. They, I, uh, they were idolaters of God's word, yet they missed the reality of what God's word pointed to. So I believe that's what Peter's saying here. I want you to crave this relationship, this good news about Jesus. He wants to be your savior. He's been resurrected to that point. Uh, that's the gospel. That's what you're to crave. In other words, he's not, he's not saying, hey, I want you to get invo- involved in another Bible study. I'd really like you to memorize these additional verses. I'd like you to plug in more and, and, and understand more of the Bible. That's all important. That's all good because that's the medium that God uses to communicate who He is to us. But if we miss the point, it's about Him. It's not about Knowledge. It's not about biblical information. It's not about wonderful scriptural factoids. As much as I like all of that, I'm a student of God's Word, and I love teaching God's Word, as much of all of, as all of that, Jesus is saying, if, if you don't see me in it, then you've missed it. And I believe that's what Peter is urging his audience to do here. He's also saying in the process that we shouldn't just simply uh, be content to receive this spiritual nourishment, but we should, we should ardently long for it, uh, search for it. So that, notice in, the, in the, the text in front of us, and there should be a new slide coming up here, so that, or by it, we might receive this this information, this good news about Jesus, that we might receive it into our innermost soul. That we might, like a baby would do with milk, might ingest that milk and that baby's body would start to metabolize that milk and turn that into the necessary uh, components to cause that baby to grow. This is what Peter is urging them to do. That that by this craving for this good news about Jesus and this, this relationship that He wants us to be in with Him, that we might grow, that by that, we might grow into salvation. Now, I want to connect this. I want to connect this to um, something back in chapter 1. I think it's important because, again, we have arbitrarily just kind of sliced and diced First Peter here. And we're, we're giving small chunks of verses every Sunday. So it's important that we continue to connect this back to things we've already heard. So go with me back to, to verse 2 in chapter 1. Verse 2 in chapter 1 uh, reads, According to the foreknowledge of God the Father, in the sanctification of the Spirit, for obedience to Jesus Christ, and for sprinkling with His blood. The foreknown there are those upon whom God decided to bestow His His grace, His covenantal favor. 
It, foreknowledge is not God looking down through the annals of history and saying, well, hey, so-and-so is going to respond, and so-and-so is going to respond, and so um, I'll, I'll go ahead and choose them. No. Foreknowledge, uh, this kind of problematic theological term, is always couched within covenant love language, you know, pr- primarily out of the Old Testament. God's affection, His steadfast love over His people. And then notice in that verse, verse 2 of chapter 1, it's the Holy Spirit who is the means of us being set apart, sanctified, or consecrated, or purified for His purposes. And all of that is done for the purpose of obedience to Jesus Christ. You, You see all three persons of the Trinity are involved there? I don't know about you, but that is like super exciting right? to know that it's that important that all three persons of the Trinity are actively engaged together in this process that we call the good news of the gospel. We are dedicated to God by the sprinkling with the blood of Jesus. Just last week we celebrated that, right? We had communion at the end of our services and we celebrated that fact And then as a result of being sprinkled by His blood and purified, we're then bound to Him. And we express that relationship by moving forward and obeying His commands. That's what Peter is connecting uh, today's thoughts about craving this spiritual nourishment, spiritual milk. He's connecting it back to the flow of what he's already said. Well, that's verse 2. That's the... That's the thrust, the primary thrust, this imperative or this command to crave the spiritual milk of the gospel. Let's go back to verse 1. Growth occurs when we're nourished by the gospel of Jesus. But it comes while we're doing something. And verse 1 gives us the context. It's while we are stripping off evil attitudes and actions that hinder our relationships with God and with each other. So he uses a, a, a different form of a verb in the beginning of verse 1. He says to, to put away, literally to stop being in the state or the, or the condition of what he's about to describe. And that word put away could be translated to take off or to lay aside or to get rid of. It's usually used in the terms of removing clothing. I thought of, I looked for a picture of someone who had, you know, been crawling through the muck and the mire. And, you know, have you ever done that? You've been working in the yard and you're just covered with junk. And so you, before you come in the house, it's like you've got to strip away all of that. You got to get cleaned up. And so what Peter's saying here is that we crave the purity of the gospel of Jesus Christ, but we do it even while we're in the process of removing this other stuff from us. In fact, verse one gives us concrete ways to describe the brotherly love that Peter had talked about in, in chapter 1, verse 22. And concrete ways to how we can earnestly or fervently love each other. So let's, let's take a, a minute and let's look at some of these. These five vices that he lists here in verse 1. Let me just read the verse for you. So put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander. There's five. We call them vices. Take a minute and just look at those. Think about those. Those are the kinds of things that interrupt relationships with each other. The kind of godly relationships that we profess we want to have with brothers and sisters in the church. These kinds of things interrupt that. 
there's a common element between all five of them. That they, they represent attitudes or actions which oppose love. They're the, they're the exact opposite of what Peter's been urging them to do. Fervently love each other. And it destroys their fellowship. One commentator put it this way. I love it. It's graphic language. They tear at the social fabric of the church. Ripping away the threads of love that keep them together. Well, there's a similar list that appears in uh, Paul's letter to the church at Colossae. Uh, Colossians chapter 3 verse 8. And interestingly enough, the city of Colossae is in, a, is in the vicinity, geographical vicinity, of where these folks are, where Peter is writing as well. So it must have been a pretty important thing for both Peter and Paul to address this. I think it is because I think we still wrestle with it today, right? I, I, I want to kind of give a, a little specific definitions for some of these. I think it will be helpful to us. The first one is malice, which speaks of wickedness or evil kind of in general terms. So he's starting with kind of a capstone word. It's the desire to harm another person, and it's often hidden behind apparently good actions. In fact, later in chapter 2, verse 16, he's going to give an example of that. This sort of ill will toward another person destroys the harmony that's supposed to exist within the fellowship of God's people. It destroys the essence of, of community. Let's look at the next one, which is deceit. And there should be a slide for that just to kind of give you a a visual as I give you some words to define it. Deceit um, could also be translated as guile or craftiness. It's using devious words and actions to get what we want. It's the deliberate attempt to mislead other people by telling lies. It's actually mentioned uh, as something to be avoided uh, later in Peter's letter in chapter 3. And Peter also says that that this kind of deceit uh, is absent or was absent from the behavior of Christ. Well, when we try to hide deceitful uh, attitudes, guess what that leads to? That leads to this next vice, hypocrisy. Hypocrisy is a term borrowed from the Greek theater. Um, hypocrisy spoke of uh, a person who would be play-acting, who would be wearing a mask, so to speak, in the theater, to pretend to be different from who we really are, especially when we do that while acting as if we're coming from good motives, when in reality we're motivated by our own selfish desires. I can't help but think of ways that we do that on Sundays. We do it all the time. We'll see each other, and Dan, I'm going to pick on you again. I'll see you, and I might say, hey, Dan, how's it going? And you might say, hey, it's going great. It's fantastic. When in reality, you've had a really, really rough week, right? We do that all the time. There's a, one of my colleagues, Eric Estep, who has been here before and preached here and was, was actually part of this fellowship when it, when it started. Um, Eric will not let me get away with that. <laughs> If he senses for a second, he'll ask me, hey, Tim, how's it going? And if, I, if I, my voice catches, I, uh, I hesitate before saying, oh, it's great, man, going fantastic. He'll, his eyes will just bore through me, and he'll go, no, 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 that's not good enough, Tim. Tell me what's really going on, right? That's, that's essentially what Peter is saying here, is we're to, we're to lay aside, to set aside our tendency to want to be hypocritical, to want to wear that mask. In fact, 
In verse 22 of chapter 1, when he defines love as sincere, sincere love, it's the goal of all believers um, to avoid these two things, deceit, hypocrisy. Two remaining vices that he lists, and I'll just quickly run through these. One is uh, envy. (laughs) Instead of desiring the best for others, we uh, envy hopes for their downfall. Or envy prefers my advancement over the joys of others. And a result of envy is that it leads to what we would call backbiting or evil speaking or conversation that tears the other person down. And that's also known as the fifth vice, slander. Literally meaning talking down about others and talking other people down. Spreading false stories, disparaging other people. You know, the well-timed words that insinuate bad things about other people. Or maybe it's not just the word, maybe it's the catch in our voice, the hesitation as we're talking about that person over there. And well, you know, that's slander. Love, instead, finds the good in others and avoids speaking what is negative. In fact, uh, Peter mentions in chapter 3, verse 16, that Christians are going to be treated this way, slanderously, by their enemies. So, (laughs) it's implicit then, as brothers and sisters who profess allegiance to Jesus and who are craving the nourishment of the gospel, it's implicit then that... We ought to avoid that. The enemy's going to do that enough. Let's avoid that in terms of each other. I don't normally preach to the talk sheet, but I can't help it today. So if you're in a life group and you have a meeting this week and you're going to be going through the questions on the talk sheet, question number two is a great question to invest quite a bit of time in discussing because question two says, how might our conversations at home or work change if these vices are no longer part of our life? I'll let you talk about that this week. I won't go into any more detail now, right? Otherwise, my preaching will turn to meddling, and I don't want to meddle with you this morning. So, But you can certainly meddle with each other in life groups. So verse 1 then uh, supplies the circumstances, you could say, for fulfilling the command in verse 2. When we put aside our evil attitudes and actions, we will crave the gospel, which in turn uh, empowers us to grow as Christians. Finally, let's jump to verse 3. So we started in verse 2, backed up to verse 1. Let's look now at verse 3. Peter says, and it's almost like an afterthought, but you'll see in just a second, it's not at all. Peter says, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. We crave the gospel because or since we have tasted that the Lord is good. This if indeed um, could be translated since. It's, It's an assumed fact by Peter. You've tasted, you've had the experience that the Lord is good. So crave more of that. Crave more of that that uh, spiritual, uh, unadulterated milk, the good news of the gospel. It's fascinating to me. Peter is using, first of all, he's using terminology that comes um, out of the uh, Old Testament, and we'll, we'll look at something there just briefly in just a minute. But he's using um, a sensory metaphor that uh, is probably, of all the senses, is the most intimate, tasting. He's not talking about hearing or speaking or seeing 
or even touching. He's talking about the tongue. He's talking about tasting. It's a very intimate uh, sensory experience. In other words, God is not a subject to be studied, but He's a banquet to be enjoyed. <laughs> right? Since we have tasted that the Lord is delicious, then crave more of that. Peter then validates. He validates his point that he's making by quoting uh, verse 8 out of Psalm 34. He quotes part of verse 8. Verse 8 actually reads, Psalm 34, Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in Him. He doesn't allude to Psalm 34 casually. It's apparent as, as we go through this book of 1 Peter, I believe we, we should be looking back at Psalm 34 repeatedly because it has had an impact on him and the themes of this psalm are, are very significant to him and he's going to continue to reference them as he goes through the rest of his letter. Let me just read for you a, a few verses out of Psalm 34. I want to urge you though, as your brother in Christ, I want to urge you, invest a few minutes this afternoon and read through Psalm 34. And you'll begin to see the connections here. The psalm starts, it's a psalm of David. It starts with, I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. And then beginning in verse 7, I sought the Lord and He answered me. And He delivered me from all my fears. Those who look to Him are radiant, and their faces shall never be ashamed. This poor man cried, David says, and the Lord heard him and saved him out of all his troubles. In fact, the angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him and delivers them. And then, here comes that verse, Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. This is a psalm of deliverance. This is a psalm of rejoicing because God has come to David's aid. And essentially, what Peter is doing by quoting this psalm, he's... um, He's actually referencing something he said back in, in, in chapter 1. In chapter 1, verse 10, you remember he talked about how Old Testament prophets uh, searched and inquired carefully into uh, what God was telling them in order to, 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 to find who this was, who was actually bringing the, the good news. Well, David is that prophet in this, in this sense. And so within this overall context of David's psalm, Psalm 34, with that in mind, Peter wants his audience, he wants his readers, he wants us today as well, to think of more than just a mere verbal expression of tasting the Lord, or listening to the Lord, or hearing from the Lord. He's reminding his audience of that sense of relief and pleasure that comes when, in fact, God has delivered us. When we recognize the reality of the gospel, the good news in our lives. It's like, oh yeah, I remember I remember when I asked Him into my life and the sense, the euphoria of forgiveness of my sins. That's what, what Peter is trying to get his audience to connect with so that they'll want more of that. So that they'll crave more of that reality of the gospel. He's speaking here of a uh, vibrant, intimate um, experience with God. Longing to grow spiritually comes from a taste of the beauty of the Lord. It's it, from experiencing His kindness, His goodness. And those who pursue God ardently have tasted that sweetness. The desire to grow springs from an experience of the Lord's kindness, an experience that leads uh, the believers to actually desiring more. Now, 
hearing God's Word, reading God's Word, that's a vital part. That's an incredibly vital part of our new life in Jesus Christ. That's the medium that God is, is using today to primarily communicate His grace to us. But if, if we're not taking that in, if we're not ingesting the reality of that good news, of that great news, that transforming grace, and, and by it putting off attitudes and behaviors that are inconsistent with that new life, then Peter says, then I urge you to instinctively, eagerly, incessantly crave that again. That's the challenge today. That's what he's asking us to do. Now, I love, um, I love the fact that uh, New Life Church has a, a unique mission statement. You know, Debbie and I have only been at New Life a little more than two years, having been in other parts around the world before coming here. I've never quite seen a mission statement like this, and I'd urge you to look at that mission statement on your, on your bulletin. Our mission is to engage those disconnected from God so they what? So they delight. I've never seen the word delight in a church mission statement. It's awesome. So they delight. I see there this idea of the craving, the goodness, the pureness of the gospel so that they delight in Him through Jesus Christ. That's what we're being called to today. I've given you the short version, and we'll put it back up on the screen. Let me give you the long form of what I'm saying this morning in conclusion. Crave the gospel. Brothers and sisters, crave the gospel. The good news about Jesus, which we enjoy by God's grace, and do it while stripping off these old habits, so that, here's the purpose, we might grow to maturity in our relationship with Jesus and with each other. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for the impactful truth of your word that although written thousands of years ago, through the inspiration of your Holy Spirit, it still impacts us today in clear, concise, concrete ways. Thank you for this urging from the Apostle Peter. Thank you for for this reminder to crave the good news of the gospel, of our relationship and our experience of the grace of God in our lives. I pray that we might be students of your word, Father, but students whose lives are changed. I pray that as people walk out of this building today and head off into whatever is on their agenda for the rest of the day, I pray that we would walk out of here as different, changed men and women because of our exposure to the truth of your word. We ask that you would be glorified, Lord, through us. We pray in the precious and holy and powerful name of Jesus. Amen.